Well, guys, welcome back, college students. This was a fun week to live in the Twin Cities, wasn't it? Everyone is going to remember where they were when that catch happened, right? We're not beyond talking about this at church. This was amazing. It was incredible. And in fact, my story goes like this. I was at an event for church, and we got to watch the end of the game, and I actually left with 25 seconds left. Unbelievable. I left because I wanted to get home to take care of my kids, and I somewhat regret that decision, right? I usually don't regret those kind of decisions, but I kind of regret this one, so I missed it. But I actually updated my phone in the car and saw the change in the score, so I knew something amazing happened, and then got a text from one of my friends in Iowa who had seen it and assumed that I saw it, and so he told me about it on the way home, and then I actually watched the replay. So I've watched all sorts of different replays. Have you guys seen the replay of the catch from the corner of the end zone? Do you know what I'm talking about? From the corner of the end zone, and it's as Stefan Diggs goes into the end zone, and the crowd is just erupting, like you hear the difference in volume. That was incredible. And then have you also seen the radio announcer who said, it's a 61-yard Minneapolis miracle. That was amazing, wasn't it? That's just a great radio call. I love that. But here's the thing. I'm going to pick on him a little bit. Does anyone really believe that it was a miracle? Right? Like supernatural intervention. Like God actually intervened into that situation. And here's my question. Why do we tend to try to make things like this more epic than they really are? Right? So I read a a number of different articles This was called a transcendent catch. The Vikings were said to have exercised their demons. And I'm reading through like the Gospel of Mark and I'm like, I think that they got all these things from the Bible. Why are we applying biblical language to ordinary human events? Here's why I think that's the case. We are longing to know that there is a God who loves us and who would intervene into human history and rescue us out of this mess that we're in. I think that actually the Minneapolis miracle points us to our longing for God, the true miracle that was done in history. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we open up the Gospel of Mark again. And we're going to see a true miraculous event. Mark chapter 9, we're looking at verses 2 through 13. The transfiguration is the title in most of your Bibles. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. So as we see this rescue plan of God unfold in this passage, we're going to look at it kind of from three different angles. We're going to see the person of Christ, the pathway of Christ, and the pattern of our own lives laid out for us in this passage. So let's just take those one at a time. The first one, the person of Christ. Now, the summary verse of this miraculous event is verse 7, where God shows up in the cloud and he says to Jesus, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And we see the deep tenderness and affection that God the Father has for his son. Actually, once you get to that point, you see that everything leading up to that, all the fireworks, was to get us to this moment where God could tell us how much he loves his son. I think there's a lot of different things that God the Father is communicating to us through this event. But one of the things that I think is most profound is that we see God the Father pulling back the curtain for humanity on this eternal relationship that God the Father and God the Son have always had. A relationship of mutual admiration and affection for each other. In other words, the foundation of all reality is that there is a father who deeply loves his son. And so here's, that might be a little bit of a surprise to you, something that you've never heard before. So I want to dive into that a little bit more deeply. The first question I want to ask about that, hey, babe, you mind grabbing the water and bringing it up for me? Got like a little frog in my throat. My lovely wife, Melissa. Thanks. Thank you, guys. All right. I might need some more of that. First question is this. When did their relationship begin? Okay, when did the relationship between God the Father and God the Son begin? And we get the answer to that in John chapter one, verses one through three. Jordan preached on this passage a few weeks back. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Just stand in awe of this fact. God the Father and God the Son have always been in relationship with each other. In the beginning. doesn't really designate an exact time. It just designates that it always has been. The very foundation of reality is not chance or a God who is all alone. The very foundation of reality is a father who loves his son. 
We see this further explained kind of by this next question. What was their relationship like? Father and a son, some of you are like, man, I don't have a good relationship with my dad. Hope that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son wasn't at some point on the rocks. And we learn in John 17, 5 that it never has been. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We see there that this relationship between God and the Father and God the Son was a relationship of mutually giving one another glory. In other words, it was a relationship where God the Father was doing for God the Son what we all long for from our own dads. He was praising him from all eternity. He was saying to him over and over again, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And in this moment on the transfiguration, we're just getting the curtain pulled back on what God the Father has always been saying to God the Son. He just gives us, as humanity, a window into it. So then the question is, okay, why? Why was this relationship so glorious? Another way to ask the question is, why was God the Father always praising God the Son? Colossians 1.15 gives us part of the answer. It says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Scripture teaches that we are made in the image of God after his likeness, but it teaches that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is a perfect reflection of God the Father. I take great delight in my sons and especially in the ways that they are like me. Jesus is like God the Father in every single way, and that means that Jesus is perfect. God the Father delights in God the Son because he's perfect. He is the perfect Son. He is amazing. Okay, we're getting deep. Let me take this down to the street level for you real quick here. I have a great relationship with my dad. We mutually enjoy relationship with each other. One of the things that I most love doing with my dad is building things. And so, for example, when we moved here to the Twin Cities, there was this big wall between my dining room and my kitchen. And I'm not that handy, but my dad is very handy. And so I call my dad so that I can help him do work for me. And so we tore down this wall, and then the floor had to be fixed. And it was kind of like a jigsaw puzzle because you had to kind of go back in and patch flooring in and kind of make some, some crazy cuts and all those types of things. And my dad and I just had a fantastic time, just spending time with one another. And, and now, whenever my dad comes to my house, the first thing he does is he kind of walks up the stairs and he walks over to the floor that we worked on together. And we just stand there like, I'm that guy now, right? We just stand there and we're just like, we did that together. And my dad will just be like, we did a really good job. We did do a good job. Yeah, I don't think anyone will notice that we ever did that. And we just, you know, stand there drinking coffee, just talking about how awesome the floor is and, and showing each other appreciation, right? It's the most natural thing in the world. When a father and son love each other, to show one another admiration, not only for character qualities, but also for things that you have done together. Now imagine the admiration that God the Father and God the Son have 
for one another when one of the things that they did was create the universe. See, they don't stand and say, oh yeah, we did a great job on the floor. Like, we did a great job making everything. The beauty of their relationship is absolutely astounding. And we actually see three ways specifically laid out in this text that Jesus is specifically admired by his father. First of all, we see that the father is admiring the majesty of Jesus. We see this at the beginning of the passage. It says that the disciples walk up with Jesus onto a high mountain. Mountains always indicate majesty in the Bible. And you see the sun is sort of glistening on top of the mountain. The Apostle Peter, later on, when he's remembering this event, he actually summarizes in its entirety what he saw as the majesty of Jesus. He says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. God is shining his spotlight on his son, and he's saying, I admire my son because he is a majestic king. He is the ruler of the universe. He is in charge. What he says is what goes. What he says doesn't go, we should never do. This is the king. In addition, we see the purity of Jesus. The apostle Peter said of Jesus that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In this passage, we see Jesus dressed in white. It says that his garments are so white that no one on earth could possibly bleach them that white. The image that my mind immediately goes to is to a wedding dress. Nothing in our experience indicates purity more than a wedding dress. And Jesus is here exalted by his Father as pure. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, down to his very depths, was unique in that he never had any sin. No corrupting talk even came out of his mouth. No lustful thought passed through his mind. He was pure. And thirdly, we see the glory of Jesus. Now, there's sort of this contrast in the passage between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. I don't know if you know much about Moses and Elijah, but they're a big deal in the Old Testament. Moses represents the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And Elijah is sort of the best of the best of the prophets. Many powerful signs and wonders were done by his hands. And so you see the apostles are like, oh man, we got three bigwigs on the scene here. Let's make tents for all of them and camp out and, because they're all really important. But we see God the Father specifically exalting Jesus and saying, no, Jesus, he's the glorious one. By Moses and Elijah making this quick appearance and then they disappear and there's these two words, right? Jesus only. Jesus only. He's in a category by himself. The book of Hebrews says it this way. It's kind of funny, actually. It says, Jesus 
has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Here's the primary difference between Jesus and Moses. Jesus made Moses. He's the builder of the house. Moses, just a house. How much more value is a person than his house? And God the Father is saying of his son, my son is so much more valuable than any Old Testament character because the very purpose of those Old Testament characters was to point forward to Jesus, which shows us something about how we ought to read the Old Testament. So in another place, it says that the apostles were terrified. You kind of think, oh man, it would be awesome to see Jesus exalted by his father, to see the curtain pulled back. But what would actually happen to you if you saw Jesus in this way is your knees would start to knock together and pretty soon you would fall flat on your face. But it's like kind of a, a good terror, like watching a, an awesome movie that has some suspenseful scenes or something like that in it. And the disciples, they're like, we just want to stay in this place. Let's just camp out. Let's make this our home. But Jesus has other plans. So the curtain was sort of pulled back, and then it's closed again. And Jesus says, okay, let's go down off the mountain. See, Jesus' purpose is not just to set up heaven on top of that mountain right there, which is what the disciples were hoping for. So next we see the pathway of Christ. Not to set up his kingdom immediately, but to do something radically different than we could ever imagine. So they're coming down off the mountain and they start having this conversation and Jesus says to them that he's gonna rise from the dead. He says, okay, don't tell anybody about this. And there's this kind of curious little sentence there, isn't there, where the disciples are like, what does he mean by this rising from the dead? It seems so plain. Why are they so hung up on this rising from the dead thing? And as we sort of start to explore the passage, we get the answer to that question. In order for someone to rise from the dead, they first have to die. And over and over again, we see in the Gospel of Mark, that's what the disciples are tripping over. God can't die. God can't suffer. Okay, we get this whole thing. Jesus, you're the beloved son of God. And that means if God loves you, he won't let you suffer. And then they ask this question that we would have never asked. Okay, we get this rising from the dead thing. What's this whole thing with Elijah? Okay, there's all these prophecies about Elijah coming before the Messiah. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. And so the disciples have been anticipating this Elijah figure. And Jesus then sort of asks them a question back. He's like, okay, Elijah, let me ask you guys a question. What about these prophecies about the Son of Man, the Messiah, suffering 
and being treated with contempt. And Jesus is making a reference to Isaiah chapter 53, specifically verse 3. One of the most beautiful prophecies about Jesus coming. It says this, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus says, okay guys, I know you're thinking about Elijah, but have you thought about the suffering of the Messiah? He's poking the bear a little bit here. He's saying, okay guys, I know you wanted me to set up shop on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. You wanted heaven on earth right now. But what about suffering? It seems like you're missing a huge part of what the Bible has to say God's plan is. And then Jesus brings up Elijah again. In verse 13, he says, I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist came with the spirit of Elijah, and he called people to repent of their sins. And we already went past this in the Gospel of Mark, that John the Baptist's reward for his faithfulness to God was getting his head chopped off. And we said before that this sets a pattern for what would happen to Jesus. It points forward to Jesus. He was a prophet in the sense that his words were true, but he was also a prophet in the sense that his life was a lived-out parable of what would take place in the life of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, okay, Isaiah 53, and then you have Elijah. He's asking them, why did John the Baptist suffer in this way? And I think what Jesus is doing is he's baiting them. These guys knew their Bible. And so he sort of alluded to Isaiah 53, verse 3, but he's wanting them to keep thinking, to keep going forward. And the next couple verses in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, go like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. See, this is amazing. God the Father has just said to God the Son, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Literally, he says, you are my Son, my beloved. And what Jesus is indicating here is that God's plan is to smite his Son is to kill his own son. Is to pour out his wrath on his own son. That eternal relationship of delight, creating universes 
for with each other is going to turn into the father killing Jesus. Why? Because he loves us. Because we are his beloved sons and daughters. And he wants to bring us into this love relationship that he has with his very own son. He wants to delight in us the way that he delights in his very own son. And that has been made impossible because of our sin. The reason that Jesus came off of the mountain is because he had to take care of our sin so that we could be in relationship with him. This is the miracle that we're longing for. This is what our hearts really want because God can die and rise again. This gives us the indication that God loves us so much that he would enter our mess and our brokenness and our suffering and our sin and that he would do that so that he can rescue us. And I think that every good story and sporting event points us to this. Aren't those the best stories? When there's this brokenness and this suffering and there's an indication that a rescue is going to happen and then there's a celebration that follows. Let me give you an example. I watched a, a really good and interesting movie. It's called The Instrument of War. The Instrument of War. And um, there was this guy who's, who's living in a POW camp and he, and he um, you know, he wants to to get out, obviously, but in his previous life, he played the violin. And so he gets a bunch of soldiers together who are in this POW camp, and he's like, guys, I need you to help me make a violin. And so all of them kind of make this their project to work on together. And so they get the wood, and they get the strings, and they somehow get a bow, and they get all these things, and they're trading cigarettes, and giving money, and paying off guards, and all this stuff. And finally, they make this violin, and they've been in this POW camp together for years. And at one point in the movie, the, the guy goes out, and they're about to be liberated, and so the Japanese army is about to just line up the American soldiers and just kill all of them because they don't want them to be liberated. And this guy goes out into the courtyard with this violin and just starts playing this absolutely be beautiful music. And it's like everybody in that moment in the movie, Japanese and American alike, remembers that there's an outside world. They remember the beautiful music. They remember the smiles of their family. They remember the laughter of their kids. They remember life before the war started. Here's what I'm saying. The gospel is the music. The reason that Jesus came into this world is to let you know that this, whatever you're going through, is all part of the plan. Don't be alarmed 
or give too much weight to the circumstances of your life because Jesus is coming back. Which leads us to the last point, which is this pattern that Jesus is calling us to live by, the pattern of Christ. Peter puts it this way. I think reflecting on these events, also reflecting on the life of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Here's what he's saying. Okay, this, this pattern. Jesus up on the mountain, giving up his transcendent, existence, giving up the love of the Father to go to the cross and to be risen again. That is the pattern that our life as Christians is to follow. The first step is to become a beloved son of God. It is through faith in Jesus and faith alone that you become a child of God. It is by taking him up on this exchange, saying, I am a sinner, you are my savior. I accept your death on the cross for my sins and I will take your perfection and I will believe that I am loved by God, not because of everything, anything that I've done, but because of everything that you have done. Do you know that you can hear the voice of God speak into your life on a daily basis? You are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. It's the first step in the Christian life. And then, sort of devastatingly or unexpectedly, God calls us to suffer. What we learn from the life of Jesus is that the most loved person in the entire universe suffered more than anyone else. So as a loved child of God, we ought to expect to suffer. What I'm talking about in suffering is I'm, I'm not just talking about persecution. I'm not just talking about you share your faith with somebody and they make fun of you. I'm talking about all of the sickness and pain and relational brokenness that each of you go through on a daily basis. We are called to face those things in a different way, though. Because we understand that it's temporary. We still feel the pain, but we know that one day it's going to be over. Which leads us to the last thing. You will rise again. That's the good news. Suffering is not the end of the story. Just like it wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. He temporarily lost the pleasure of his father and was put under his wrath. But the plan all along is that he would rise again with an even greater glory of having obeyed his father to the end. And God has the same glory planned for you. Okay, back to the Minneapolis miracle, then we're going to end with some scripture, okay? Think about this with me for a second. Who do you think enjoyed the Minneapolis miracle more than anyone else? I did a little research on the history of the Vikings. I'm still trying to catch 
catch up a little bit. So some of you might have known this. But like 40 years ago, the Vikings went to four Super Bowls in seven years. And they lost all of them. Okay, so here's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about how much I enjoyed the Minneapolis Miracle. I've lived here like six months, right? It's amazing. I got chills, right? But I was thinking about these guys who are like in their 70s. And they remember the four failed Super Bowl attempts. And all the losses. They've been through all the ups and downs with the Vikings. And when they saw that happen, they didn't stand up and cheer. Some of them maybe even cried, right? This is, a, this is the best day of my life. Here's what's true. In sports and in life, the more that you suffer, the more you enjoy the victory. If we could experience heaven for 15 seconds right now, we would actually want our lives to be filled with suffering. Here's why. Isaiah 35, verses two through six. This is what's gonna happen in the end. We already know the end of the story. Do you guys know that? You can just read it in this book. It's awesome. God's already written the ending. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Listen to this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God is going to do, undo everything sad in this world, and he is going to turn it for good. You will rise again. So my encouragement to you today, as you suffer just little aches and pains, emotional griefs, whatever it is, Keep on going because Jesus is coming back and it's all going to be worth it. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to thank you for even um, little simple pleasures in life like football that remind us of deep biblical truths. Your story is written into the universe in innumerable ways. This story of suffering leading to glory. Jesus, will you open our eyes so that in the midst of our pain, we will not give up hope, but we will keep walking forward because one day, and Jesus, we long for that day, you will come and rescue us finally and completely. That's why we worship you, because you are the only one who can. In Jesus' name, amen.